today on Fuzzy Logic. We've got legs and we know how to use them. We're going to be talking about things with two legs, four legs, six legs, eight legs. Is there something with ten legs? Stay tuned to find out right here on Fuzzy Logic. Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to be with you this Sunday as we take an hour to delve into the world of science once again, as we love to do here with you, Fuzzy Files. And uh, joining me in the studio for some fuzzy good times is Jill. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Broderick. Oh, I almost forgot to switch your mic on then. That was a close <laughs> one. <laughs> Definitely a Sunday. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, look, Jill, uh, how's your week been? Very sciencey. Oh, there's always science in everything. So mostly the science involved in planting at the moment. I've been planting some seeds and seeing how they grow. So back to basics. Uh, quite contrary, indeed. <laughs> uh, well, look, that's, uh, that's very scientific, too. There is a lot of science involved, and that those uh, rains from the uh, storm would certainly be helping the garden at the moment. Oh, yeah, it's kind of squashing them a little bit. It's a bit heavy, but we'll see how it goes. It's, you know, learning as we go. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's the scientific process, isn't it? Trying something out, testing it, seeing what happens, and then uh, improving for next time. Well, it was an unintended you know, lack of control on <laughs> that part. So, uh, uh, very good. Well, hopefully they uh, they come up uh, with some nice uh, veggies and fruits and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, very good. Well, look, it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning because today we are well, we're not actually talking about legs as such. I mean, you know, legs are wonderful things, and we could spend a whole show talking about how they work and the many joints in a leg and and the, what they do. I mean, they they allow us to walk and run and do a range of things but that's not what we're going through today it um it just so happened that there are a few sort of leg-based stories that were coming out around creatures with different numbers of legs today so i thought that's where we'd start and uh to kick it all off jill i've got uh, a story about some of the robots that are coming out of the company boston dynamics did you see the clip this week of the robot doing a backflip no, I haven't seen. I don't. I'm not a big YouTuber. <laughs> I, I think I need to get a bit more onto my well, YouTube. Well, yeah, this one's coming through Facebook, and in fact, I haven't posted it yet, listeners. But uh, after today's episode, I will jump on Facebook and post a clip of it from Boston Dynamics, which is a a, a robot company out of uh, Boston, as the name implies. And uh, they released a clip this week of their robot Atlas doing a jump, a backflip, and actually sticking the landing, uh, which is quite amazing. Did you give it a ten out? Of- 10 well it was it was a pretty decent effort but it's, it's actually funny you say you know youtubing and that sort of thing because one of my favorite things to watch on youtube is uh fail videos and some oh, of 
love wedding fail videos. <laughs> well, some of the robot fail videos are quite entertaining. Uh, but the interesting thing is uh, the robot company Boston Dynamics was using a lot of their robot fail videos, as hilarious as they were, to work out what was going on in their robot in terms of sensing and working out what's happening uh, to help it recover better uh, so that it could actually stay balanced. Uh, so there's a wonderful clip of the robot doing, uh, sort of jumping off a vault, doing a backflip on the vault, landing, not sticking the landing, and then just completely headbutting the vault, <laughs> like falling <laughs> forwards, giant headbutt. It's great. It looks hilarious. But if a robot fails, is it really the robot's fail or is it the programmer's fail? <laughs> well, this is the interesting thing because they are using. Um, a lot of uh, the AI uh, sensing and that sort of thing and robot learning, while they give it a, a huge range of sensors and, and vision, uh, there's also a lot of learning that the robot does itself by, by falling over and then working out what happened there and how it can avoid that happening in the future. Um, so there's, there's interesting things that it does in terms of learning to balance itself, uh, but there is also a lot that's done by the roboticists themselves uh, so, and that sort of thing. Um, so it's quite amazing um, to see this robot doing a backflip um, because they had previously sort of been struggling with jumping and that sort of thing. Uh, but my question for you, Jill, is why do you think a robot needs to do a backflip? To impress the female robots? <laughs> to impress. Well, I mean, we haven't heard whether Atlas is male or female yet, but to, oh, okay, to, to yeah. impress their friends. Yeah, to impress their friends. Yeah, for sure. To escape a predator? Well, it's not even that. I think it's just more of a proof of concept type situation here because what they want is a robot that can be uh, adaptable to any situation. And so the best way to do that is to make it do a bunch of things. So if it has to go, it won't necessarily have to do a backflip in its tasks. <laughs> but if it is going across large gaps or it has to go from a high level to a lower level that's more than just a step, then it needs to know how to jump, how to balance, how to control itself during that process. So it needs to learn parkour. It, it, it basically does. Yeah. I mean, if you design a parkour robot, then it can go anywhere. And, and this is one of the interesting things with the Atlas robot from Boston Dynamics is that it's... Uh, it's a two-legged robot, so it's actually quite humanoid um, in its in its looks. It's uh, 150 centimeters tall, uh, so so only just shorter than only me. just shorter than <laughs> you. Um, about 75 kilos, so a little bit heavier than the average person. Um, that's 150 centimeters tall, so it's kind of like a, a short, short, stout person. Uh, <laughs> but of course, it's got a lot of uh, mechanics inside it at the moment. And metal's pretty heavy. That's right, um, and so it, it looks like. A person it's got the head the arms the legs all part of the balancing uh act that it's doing and so one of their thoughts with um the robot is that it's actually designed like that to be human-like because they want it to be able to navigate across surfaces that humans can um, if you have a wheelie robot, you know, a robot that's wheel-based, it can be great on flat surfaces, but when it gets to rocky terrain or steps or something like that, it just completely fails. But then are humans actually the best to navigate those sorts of terrains? I mean, you see insects and goats and things climbing all sorts of weird areas, so is copying a human really the best way to go about it? 
That's, a, that's an interesting question. And I think part of copying a human is just to make us feel more comfortable with the robots because we'd feel much comfortable, more comfortable dealing with humanoid-type creatures. Uh, but the, Boston Dynamics have a huge range of robots, and I might list some of them off now because some of them are actually modelled after different creatures to perform different purposes. Uh, so one of the uh, first robots they created was Big Dog. Uh, and as you can imagine, Big Dog looks a bit like a... Big Dog. A Big Dog, that's right. <laughs> um, and so it had uh, four legs. It uh, was designed It was designed in conjunction with uh, the defence uh, group in the USA, um, along with uh, some other researchers from uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and uh, Harvard University as well. And what they were hoping was that it would be a bit like a, a robotic pack mule, so a bit more like a donkey, really, but it still looks and moves a bit like a dog. Is that to make us more comfortable again? Well, to, 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 yeah, to carry things along in, in defence situations. Maybe making it look like a dog rather than a donkey to make people happier <laughs> because we like dogs more? No, no, I think that was just simplicity and size-based at the moment, so they, they were doing it. So they developed it, and uh, so instead of, yeah, big wheels, it had four legs for movement, moving across surfaces that wheels couldn't go across. Um, and it was designed to carry 150 kilos alongside a soldier at a walking pace of about six kilometres an hour. Hour. Oh wow! So that's that's pretty good, and you know, traversing rough terrain, um, up hills at about thirty-five degrees, which you know is pretty similar to human um, uh, abilities there. Uh, so that was Big Dog. Uh, unfortunately, Big Dog was too noisy uh, for defence use. <laughs> so, Bark too much. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, so they've they've sort of slowly changed around. Um, one of the interesting ones that they've done out of that is they've developed a quiet robot, um, and this is called Spot Mini. Um, like a, Spot the Dog. Like Spot the Dog. Again, a, uh, a, a dog-like robot. Um, only weighs 25 kilos, this robot, uh, and it's a, it can kind of basically fit under a coffee table, um, and then it can duck even lower as well. Uh, runs off electricity, can operate for about 90 minutes, and it was designed to be a quiet robot, uh, so that it can work around people's homes, perform specific tasks, but not be uh, super noisy, because a lot of the pistons and that sort of thing that operate in these robots are quite noisy. Um, the interesting thing about this one was it does look like a small dog, like it's super cute. But one of the uh, things they tried with it was an extendable neck. And it basically made it look like a cross between a dog and a dinosaur <laughs> at this point. <laughs> a dogosaur. Dogos that's right, that's right. That's what everyone wants. It was it was kind of funny with this extendable neck that looked at you. It looks super cute. Um, so that was a... Uh, and a home application for these robots, trying to make it a bit quieter, a bit nicer. Uh, what else we got? There are other applications. Ah, the R-Hex is a, uh, a really interesting one. And, uh, oh, no, hold on. I don't think that's the one I wanted to talk about. Uh, where is it? Ah, the Rise. That's the other one. So R-Hex is a six-legged one. I didn't do much research on that. Well, Australia does have a six-legged robot called a Hexapod. Oh, really? That was developed by the CSIRO. Oh, what does that look like? So it was... I mean, if anyone's seen Toy Story mm. and you remember the weird little thing with the doll's head and all the legs coming off it. Like it kind of looked like a, a spider with a doll's head on top. Yeah, but yeah. this one has six legs. So it's yep. very much like that, but without the doll's head. Okay, um, yes. So it's less creepy. <laughs> but it's actually designed to traverse terrain that we can't, so quite rocky, and to go into disaster zones. Yeah. So natural disasters where there's been earthquakes, those sorts of things, and it's quite 
unstable and dangerous to go in, they can go in and find if there's life inside and whether it's worth humans going in. Because if a robot gets crushed, we're not too sad. I mean, it's expensive, but it's not loss of life by sending in a person. So, yeah, that's one that's actually been developed in Australia. There you go. Well, the Arhex sounds pretty similar to that um, with its independently controlled legs uh, to to go in a range of different areas. Um, But the six-legged one that I did want to talk about from Boston Dynamics is a bit different again. And this one's called Rise. uh, And it's actually just like a six-legged gecko or something like that. Now, geckos obviously have four legs. Don't (laughs) <laughs> don't write in complaining about that listeners i know that but it, it's got six legs but it works a lot like a gecko um climbing vertical surfaces such as walls trees fences with a b- bunch of micro claws on its feet to climb on textured surfaces um so and it can change its posture to conform to the curvature of the climbing surface and it also has a tail to help it balance on steep ascents so, uh, yeah, quite an amazing uh, little creature. Each leg's powered by a pair of electric motors and an onboard computer controls the leg motion uh, to uh, service its variety of sensors too to, to kind of make sure it stays there. It's uh, 25 centimetres long, weighs two kilos and travels uh, 30 centimetres a second. So, you know, that's not too too shabby. No. Um, if you're going straight up and down and, and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> How quick can a real gecko go? Uh, I'd say much faster than that. They do look pretty quick. <laughs> they do, they do. But this is the uh, the robot climbing gecko. Um, and the other one uh, that's quite interesting from these folks... Well, actually, there's two more that are quite interesting. I'll talk quickly about the sand flea. The sand flea's a funny <laughs> one because it's like a, a jumping remote control car. Oh. Um, so tiny little square base, four wheels, uh, super fast on wheels, flat surfaces, wheels work really well. Um, but then it's capable of jumping nine metres straight up in the air. Whoa. So that's pretty high. Um, five kilo robot. That's crazy. Just drives around. And yeah, so the the really important thing too is that it jumps straight up. Like it's it's really highly controlled There's and it's no jumping. angle on it. No, Even no. If, so is that from a stopped position or is can it be going along flat out and then all of a sudden jump nine metres? Uh, from the video I saw, it looked like it had stopped before it jumped. Okay. Um, but yeah, obviously, I mean, in the real world, they probably want to jump forward slightly. Yeah. But they're trying to get a really controlled jump. Um, so they've got gyroscopic stabilization, stabilization, stabilization <laughs> there. Um, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the uh, the little robot one. So not so much like an animal there, uh, but then the super fast robot that they've developed is the cheetah, uh, which is a four footed robot. How fast do you reckon um, it can go? Well, if it's called the cheetah, it should be able to go at least 110 kilometers an hour. <laughs> not quite that fast. Oh, okay, so it hasn't fast. reached cheetah speeds. No, no, but it does go 45 kilometers an hour. Which is pretty quick when you think about it for something that's not on wheels. Oh, it's not on wheels. No, it's a no, running no. one. No, it's, got, it's a four-footed robot. So it's got four feet that gallops along uh, mimicking cheetah movements. Um, so, yeah, so can't quite go. Is, is 110 kilometers really a cheetah's top speed? I think it's their top speed. Yeah, yeah they can't maintain it for very long. So yeah. I'm sure the robot can go for a lot longer. But cheetahs have a very short burst. Yeah. And they will 
Yeah, so they have to try and catch something quite quickly, but they can't maintain it for a very long amount of time. Ah, uh, right, yes. Well, no, this one would be able to maintain it for, for much, much longer. Um, I don't have battery life here, but it is a, a pretty amazing animal. It's got an articulated back that flexes back and forth on each step, uh, so increasing its stride and running speed, but also helping it balance in there too. Um, and, and one of the interesting things is one of the when they were originally testing this robot, they were doing it in a lab on a treadmill. So they just had this <laughs> robot running on the treadmill like crazy. It's quite amazing to see. Um, so they've developed some amazing robots, this company, Boston Dynamics. They're quite an interesting company. They were uh, operating on their own. Then Google uh, – no, they were operating with defense contracts. Oh. Then Google or Alphabet overseeing Google purchased them. And then uh, just this year, Google pulled out of it. They sold them off. Um, I don't quite know why. I mean, some of this stuff is pretty freaky. <laughs> they're doing pretty amazing. <laughs> so maybe it was too weird even for Google. Um, but now they're operating owned by a, a Japanese. Overseeing company there um, doing some cool stuff, but yeah, Atlas doing backflips off the uh, the vault is pretty amazing. Um, and one of the one of my favourite things about Atlas was well, kind of an interesting ethical dilemma here is um, to test Atlas in the initial stages and to help it learn how to recover from falling over and that sort of thing. They bullied it. Aww. And it's. It's really, it's really quite gut wrenching to watch. Like you feel really <laughs> sorry for this robot. But does the robot feel sad? Well, I don't know if it feels sad. So then, how does bullying it work if it doesn't feel emotions? Well, so its primary goal uh, in in the the main case where they've uh, shown this is to pick up a box and move a box. And so it, it's, it's got the box in front of it. It's trying to pick it up and move the box. And there's someone who has a hockey stick and uses uh, the uh, handle end of the hockey stick to push the robot. So you push it over and it has to stumble and recover. Oh, so they're not um, yelling at it, going, no, no. oh, you're not good enough, you can't even. No, this is physical bullying, oh, not okay. verbal bullying. I thought yeah. it was more verbal bullying. I'm like... How is this robot responding to verbal bullying if it doesn't feel shame and embarrassment? No, no, physical, physical. Um, so they're pushing it over and they're also knocking the... Like when it picks up the box, they knock the box out of its hand. Well, it's not really bullying. Then... It's just challenging the robot. <laughs> it looks like bullying to me because they knock the ro- box out the robot's hand and then knock the box away so the robot has to run and get it. And then they knock it down again. Like, we do it's that just... to pets all the time. Oh, so, that's we not take very the ball nice. out of the dog's mouth and we throw it and no but the dogs enjoy well maybe the robot well, does enjoy that, that. yeah That's the robot true. doesn't feel enjoyment and doesn't feel sadness so we there you go so yeah so this um anthropomorphizing look, maybe, i think well and and this is the great thing about watching the robot do the backflip is you totally anthropomorphize it because not only does it do the backflip off the vault but when it's done it sticks two arms up in the air <laughs> like a gymnast and goes yep i've done it and, and then you do you just... hate it because you can't do the same thing uh, no i felt pretty proud okay. for it i thought yeah you go robot you do it <laughs> So, yeah, so some amazing robots coming out of Boston Dynamics. Two legs, four legs, six legs, doing some crazy stuff. We're going to get into some more creatures that have uh, a bunch of different numbers of legs <laughs> just <laughs> later on in today's episode. But before we do, let's have a little bit of music. Uh, in uh, reference to the robot um, standing up, this is Mustard Courage with Standing By Your Side. Standing by your side. 
mustard courage there with standing by your side. And that's what we're doing today here on Fuzzy Logic. We are standing up on our own two legs. Well, actually, we're sitting down in the studio, aren't we, Jill? <laughs> yeah, but we can stand if we wanted we to. Can. We can. And, and today we are focusing on legs. We just heard the story from uh, Boston Dynamics there about all their uh, different legged robots. And so we are looking at... Uh, some creatures with different legs now. We're going to start with two, four, six, eight, and if we've got time, we'll get up to ten. Wild. Well, I know, crazy, crazy. <laughs> uh, so, first two-legged creature, Jill, what is this sound? Annoying. Annoying? Is that is that what you... No? No. What, what creature is it? Oh, it's a pigeon. It's a pigeon, yeah. yeah. That's and right. those creatures are annoying. Well, not these ones. These are the crested pigeons that make this noise. And the crested pigeons aren't the street rat pigeons that we see. These are the native pigeons. They're the ones with the little point on their head? With the crest, yeah. Yeah. That's right. The crested pigeons are lovely. I like crested pigeons. <laughs> you would. They're like, I, I call them Elvis pigeons, to be honest. Oh, really? I just feel like the little black you know, spike on their head looks a bit like Elvis. Anyway, um, that noise, how do you think the pigeons make that noise? With their mouth. With their mouth? With their beak? Yeah. Yeah. Like with the vocal cords and things. That's, uh, that's not the case. Like, I don't know how pigeons normally make noise, but I assume well, it's vocal cords. They do, they do normally use the... Yeah. That sort of noise, yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's vocal... Well, that's within their body. But the, um, the, the alarm signal that they raise... So that's the noise that they make when they're flying away. Yeah. And, and it's actually an alarm signal uh, to, to let other pigeons in the area know, hey, I'm flying away because there's something happening. Someone's chasing me. That's right. And to do it, they actually use their wings to make that sound. So they have a special feather, the eighth primary feather. Oh, uh, yes. As you know, opposed to the sixth primary <laughs> that's feather. That's right. So it's, it's, a, it's a feather along their wing, and the eighth primary is unusually narrow um, on the wing. And so being quite narrow, it actually helps produce that high note of the alarm, which prompts other pigeons to flee in danger. Uh, so it, it appears that the feather has evolved for sound production um, so that uh, they can create a sound as they fly away. Um, it's about half the width of neighbouring feathers, which is really unusual to see in birds. Um, and so when they flap, they flap their wings faster to produce that fast, uh, loud sound when fleeing. Um, so, so are there any other birds that do have this sort of thing or uh, not um, not that they know of um, other types of pigeons yeah no it, it hasn't been found in other pigeons this um, so this just this, the crested just the crested pigeon oh. so quite an amazing little evolution and it's I mean it, it's quite a good idea really because rather than having to make a vocal sound uh, when you're in trouble rather than having to say help you can just start running or flapping in this case and the sounds made automatically for you yeah um, so it's a nice way to um to give this danger signal, uh, and it just happens innately. It's kind of impressive there, that research coming out from the ANU uh, here in Canberra. Well, what's quite... I would be interested to find out if other birds respond to that warning. Yeah, because definitely. Because I've heard of cases where birds have responded, learnt to respond to other types of birds, sorts of warning calls and things like that, mm. if other birds have noticed this and if they will then respond in a similar sort of way. Totally, totally. And that would be an interesting study to do. Um, in this... ANU, if you're listening. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, in this case, <laughs> the, the researchers, um, Dr. Trevor Murray from the ANU uh, Research School of Biology was 
doing the research and part of the way they were doing it was um, they were really just focused on what was making the noise at this point um, but part of the way they did it was they actually captured a small number of the pigeons um, and then trimmed their eighth primary feather uh, to see what happens and so it didn't affect their flight ability at all but it did stop them making that noise when they were flying away. Ah, yeah. I thought they just went out and chased a bunch of pigeons. <laughs> Well, that would also have been part of it, I'm sure, chasing <laughs> pigeons indeed. Okay, so there's our two-legged story done. We've got two legs ticked, two-legged pigeon. Yep. Oh, good. Four-legged creature. Uh, I don't have a sound for this one, unfortunately. Um, I, do, do, I can, do you want me to make one? I would I can... like you to try and make one. I would <laughs> um, love that. I don't quite... Well... <laughs> I'm going to give you a clue as to what it might be by saying no one really knows what sound this creature made, but it was probably something along the lines of... And he's just made a weird trunk movement as he did it. He can't make the sound without the trunk movement. So that was a big dead giveaway. I'm guessing some kind of elephant-y-esque thing. Yeah, well, it's an elephant we don't see anymore, so... Mammoth? Is that an elephant? It's a mammoth. Well, it's, it's from the <laughs> elephant family. Ah. Yeah. And, and so I assume with its trunk it also made uh, elephant-like noises. Uh, you might have seen in the news this week, Jill, that uh, Laiuba, I think that's how you pronounce it, it's Russian, I don't speak good Russian, um, Laiuba <laughs> um, uh, has arrived in Sydney. Laiuba? Laiuba. Do we know what that stands for? It means love in Aww. Russian. Yeah. Was it? Why? Um, they called it love. I think because it's such a cute little creature. Because Laiuba is a 35-day-old fossilised frozen woolly mammoth. And yeah. how does its size compare to that of a baby elephant? Uh, so it is pretty similar. Um, I'm just trying to look here on my stats. And I don't think I actually have its, um, its size. But it's being handled by people. So I'd say it's probably... Um, you know, a metre to two metres in size. Yeah. Like, it's a pretty tiny little elephant. So I'm imagining elephant. just this gorgeous little hairy elephant. Yeah, well, and that's basically it. It looks super cute. Um, and you can just imagine it plodding about. Um, it's, it's, I mean, in well, some ways anymore. it's... No, in some <laughs> ways it's a sad story because it's uh, scientists have worked out that uh, Laiuba probably died in a mudslide um, when uh, she was about 35 days old. Um, but now, 42,000 years later... Uh, she is the most uh, oldest and most intact mammoth uh, specimen that we have. Oh. Um, and that's in Sydney. It's, it's in Sydney. Made the long trip from Siberia in Russia. Yeah. Um, in Siberia, it was actually found uh, by uh, some uh, local um, reindeer herders. Wow. Uh, so a Siberian that's a pos- family. That's a job, is it? Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, we're just I need like- to... Change my career. <laughs> That's right. So in northwestern Siberia in 2007, a, a family who are reindeer herders found uh, found Laiuba and uh, they didn't touch her because they uh, were animists. Uh, so animism is the religious belief that objects, places and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. And so they saw this baby woolly mammoth frozen in the ice and so they just didn't want to... Uh, touch her because they didn't want to bring bad luck. Uh, wow. Yeah, but luckily they told other people and uh, through the work of scientists over in Russia uh, they were able to extric- extricate Laiuba and uh, she's just recently been transported over to Sydney uh, where they had to take huge uh, steps to look after um, 
look after her as uh, she was uh, transported over. There was a stop in Dubai where they had her in a uh, climate-controlled refrigerated area. Um, upon arrival in Sydney, they also had her in a, for 24 to 48 hours in a climate-controlled case uh, before they eventually uh, opened the case and uh, brought her out. Um, and so that's on display as part of a, a giant exhibition at the moment uh, that's happening there um, on uh, on uh, mammoths and other creatures, oh, Giants of the Ice Age exhibition at Australian Museum. Um, yeah, so it's quite a, quite a beautiful specimen. It's mostly intact. Uh, the wild dogs have bitten off her tail and part of her ear, um, and uh, but she's she's the, the, been more studied than any other woolly mammoth on Earth. There's fur, fur on her body, and she even has her milk tusks as well as her milk teeth. Aww. So a first set of tusks and teeth uh, through. So it's quite amazing to find this complete uh, complete fossil because most fossils that they find are tiny, fragmentary, um, but Laoba has uh, been preserved quite well. They can even see that Laoba's last meal was grass. Oh, so she was up to eating grass. She wasn't yeah. still ha- like just on milk, so she no. was being, you know... Comfort, just yeah. starting out. So quite an amazing preservation indeed. Have they talked about what the fur feels like? No, well, I don't think they're... Uh, allowed to touch it. Allowed to touch it too much. I mean, I'd like to know if there is, like, it feels like just a big, like, elephant kind of dog, and I would think that it would be fun to pat, but... Yeah, well, you can go and check it out in Sydney at the Australian <laughs> Museum. I don't think I'll look. be allowed to pat it. <laughs> no, no, you can probably have a look and imagine from there. Um, but one of the interesting things I came across in researching for this story was um, another study that's uh, been released recently looking at all the uh, woolly mammoth specimens we have. And of those, uh, do you reckon more specimens are male or female? So which ones? I feel like they'd be more male. They'd be silly enough to get caught more often. <laughs> well, that, that's the, the truth. They are more male. There's a disproportionate number of males. In fact, 70% uh, of specimens that have been identified are males. So that's a 70-30 split um, compared to the likely 50-50 split that it yeah, was well, when they were existing. Is, do they think that it was a 50-50 yeah. split when they existed and it's just that males are more found or was there actually more males in existence? No, they I think it probably was a, a 50-50 split um, looking at uh, modern elephants and the way okay. they exist. Um, and so they reckon that what it probably was was just that the males were more likely to walk into tar pits or fall into <laughs> ice or that sort of thing. Um, you know, because males were more often uh, lone woolly mammoths venturing out on their own um, rather than a part of a, a group or a pack. Uh, so... It, it's, it's, if you look at modern elephants, modern elephants are actually a highly matriarchal species. Uh, so they consist of herds of females and young elephants, and young elephants are looked after by an experienced adult female. Whereas males, the bull elephants, uh, tend to live alone or among other bachelors and engage in more risk-taking behaviour. It's actually the same as sperm whales. Oh, is it? Yeah, they actually have like little groups of like mother's groups, I guess, and or other females as well, and they all share to take care of the babies rather than just one taking care of her own. Yeah, very interesting. So there you go. So that is uh, what's happening in these uh, creatures. Uh, so it's quite an interesting uh, little study there um, showing that, yeah, many more males are found probably because they were more risk-taking than the, uh, the females who stayed in packs. Yeah. 
Ah, there we have it. Mm, indeed. All right, so we've done two legs, we've done four legs, uh, up to six legs. This is over to you, Jill. Ah, six legs are my thing, are they? Yeah. I only have two legs, just in case you were all wondering. <laughs> it's not because I have six legs. Well, there are a lot of creatures that have six legs, and they do all share in the same family. And these are our... Insects. Insects. Insects have six legs. Beautiful. It's like teaching kindergarten. It's wonderful. So insects, there are a lot of wonderful insect stories, but one I've been fascinated by recently is one to do with our little stripy pollinating friends, the bees. So bees, I don't know if people have seen the bee movie, which... Bees don't actually wear jumpers, so the bee movie is And isn't... they don't talk like Jerry Seinfeld? No. I mean, I haven't heard one What's talk the like deal Jerry with honey? Seinfeld, but they might. They might, okay. Um, but there is some, you know, real parts in the bee movie about bees dying out. So there is a lot of issues at the moment with bees worldwide having um, things like colony collapse disorder, which is where bees actually are getting diseases. They go back into the hive, and like if you were to do that, you know, at work you get sick and you go to work, you're going to make everyone else sick. Mm. So the bees are doing the exact same thing. And we can lose up to 50,000 bees in 24 hours from these diseases. Wow. So it's a lot of bees disappearing. And it's not just that that's causing these issues. We've also got issues like climate change, habitat destruction. There's a type of mite called the varroa mite that's getting in and ruining their hives. And it is causing issues. America's suffering a lot. Australia is actually sending honeybees to America to oh, help really? pollinate their plants. Yeah, yeah, they actually have lost enough bees that we're actually exporting bees. Right, to... right. And because bees play such an important role in, in pollinating all our plants and our, uh, you know, making crops like fruits and vegetables yeah. uh, come to... so not just honey. Bees aren't just there for our honey. They no. pollinate, they think, about one-third of our crops. Yeah, wow. So things like avocado, raspberries, coffee. So a lot of hipsters will be devastated <laughs> if we run out of bees. I, I feel like there's a, <laughs> there's a marketing campaign in that, hipsters to support bees. Oh, all over it. <laughs> so there are a lot of issues with bees. Australia hasn't been hit by a lot of these things. We obviously have climate change and habitat destruction. Mm. That's everywhere. But this mite hasn't made it to Australia yet. It's made it to New Zealand and Indonesia, so we're close, but we're still... And we haven't suffered a lot of colony collapse disorder. So we have started a program um, in Australia. CSIRO has worked on this, and they're actually t putting little tiny backpacks on the bees. So just like the bee movie, like he did have a little backpack in the movie? Yeah, but this one doesn't carry lunch and it doesn't have straps. Okay. It's not as useful as regular backpacks. <laughs> so what's this bee backpack look like? <laughs> These bee backpacks are tiny little squares. So they're a quarter of a centimetre and they weigh about the same as half a grain of rice. So they're tiny, tiny little things that we're actually sticking onto the backs of bees to essentially stalk bees. <laughs> so we're stalking bees to find out where they're going. So not to find their honey, but we can w collect what we call baseline data. Yeah. So it's finding out what the bees are doing and where they're going. And if we see changes in that, then we can assess what's happening and find out what needs to happen. So it's it's basically a GPS tracker on the bees that we're not you know taking video footage or anything like no, that. No, no tiny just... cameras or anything. So they work similar to the e-tag sensors that you would go through at the Sydney toll roads and things. Right. So the tiny sensor we set up other sort of sensor points around in their hive, all of that, and they go past them, and we 
e-tag them as they go. They don't have to pay, though. <laughs> right. So they're that's, okay that's in that okay. way. <laughs> okay. But, but then it then relies on having the, the toll gates, I suppose, for lack of a better word, in the, in the right places so you can work out where they're going. Yeah, so they will yeah. select certain hives. We've yep. done this to 100,000 bees in Tasmania. So it's usually only about 5,000 at a time have it, yeah. but 100,000 bees have had it. We've also done it to bees in South America. Okay. And we found that bees are very routine. They do the same thing every day. So yeah. Tasmanian bees like to sleep in. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, they like a good sleep in. They also won't go out when it's raining. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas South American bees will go out quite early, but then come home for an afternoon siesta. Just like the South Just Americans. Just like the South Americans. So it's, <laughs> there's obviously something there and the reason mm. for that. Um, yeah, so they we're doing this research and finding out tracking bees and they're actually working on getting sensors that are powered by the wing uh, movement of the bees (laughs) no way yeah that's crazy well the bees don't live for very long so they don't need to be powered for very long yeah okay but yeah even getting power to something that small would be such a huge challenge yeah well i guess being that small you don't need too much power is one of the big things being you know yeah. Quite a tiny thing that doesn't have to do a lot for a very small amount of time. We are only putting them on, um, CSIRO is only putting them on the female bees because they're the ones that do all the work. Yeah. The boys yeah. are just there for the mating. Oh, so hold on. I thought the, the drones were the worker bees. No, so the females do a lot of the work. Okay. Um, they're the ones with stingers in the European honeybee. So this right. is the Western honeybee that we're looking at. Yeah. There are lots and lots of species of bees. Um, obviously, a lot of native species in Australia, one even called the teddy bear bee, Aww. which is super cute. <laughs> but yeah, so it's the females that do the work. The males literally are just there for reproduction. Ah, right. Oh, very interesting indeed. So bees <laughs> heading out with their backpacks and uh, helping us understand what's going on. Yeah, so hopefully we'll learn a little bit more from that in the future. Nice. Well, nice little story about a uh, six-legged creature there, Jill. <laughs> uh, we're going to uh, jump into eight legs in just a moment, but before we do, here's a little song about a two-legged creature, the uh, bullfrog named Jeremiah. <laughs> this is uh, Joy to the World by Three Dog Night. That was Joy to the World by Three Dog Night there. Uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic, the science show here on FM Community Radio. And being scientists, we are happy to correct ourselves when we make a mistake. And uh, I, I got informed as soon as I said it by my co-host Jill here <laughs> that I made a mistake there. So I, Broderick Matthews, said that frogs have two legs. Frogs have four legs. I, I, I was just so obsessed with the jumping legs at the back, I thought the front two were arms. Well, like a rabbit. That's, that's right. Know, and, they've got four legs. And they do. They have four legs. So that was a song about a four-legged creature, <laughs> not a two-legged creature there, uh, with Jeremiah the bullfrog. As we have been going through today here on Fuzzy Logic, we've been going through different numbers of legs on our news stories. So we had the uh, two-legged crested pigeon, we had the four-legged woolly mammoth, 
We had the six-legged honeybees, and now we get to eight legs. What do we got with eight legs? Well, I hope it's not spiders, because they're the worst. No, no. I, I purposely... <laughs> I know how arachnophobic you are, Jill, so we avoided spiders. We chose the other amazing eight-legged creature, which is the underwater one, the octopus. And I am definitely octophilic. Yes, you are. <laughs> you love the octopus. Well, this, this one comes out of a, a report that uh, we actually talked about a little while ago here on Fuzzy Logic, which was the octopus's garden. Uh, that's uh, been happening out in Jarvis Bay. Uh, so the ACT part that's on the coast, uh, <laughs> when you're in the Capital Territory, we do have a beach down at Jarvis Bay. It's wonderful there. Uh, you can go diving and snorkeling and see some amazing creatures. Um, but one of the recent discoveries by researchers was of a site, uh, well, in fact, two sites, uh, where octopuses have started to settle in a colony, what appears to be a colony. Um, so they're, they're nicknaming them uh, Octlantis. Uh, and what the researchers have found is that multiple octopus are living together. Now, the octopus we're talking about are the gloomy octopus, which are Octopus tetricus. Um, and uh, they're normally a solitary animal. Now, you've worked a bit with uh, these octopus, Jill. Uh, what, what's, what are they like? Um, well... They're beautiful. They're just amazing. <laughs> they are very solitary. So octopus do not like living together. They only come together to breed and then they separate again. So they will not hang out together in you know packs for fun. They're quite intelligent creatures. So octopus can learn quite well. They do interact really well with humans and they can actually start to recognize different humans based on their interactions with them. So they're quite wonderful, intelligent creatures. But yeah, because you, you used a... to work down the, the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre in Eden and, and, and also through the Marimbula region as well, swim and snorkel with them. Um, yeah. But the ones you had in, in, in aquariums, would they, they recognise uh, their feeders and that sort of thing? Yeah, so they would definitely recognise people and they would respond differently to me than they would to a different just general visitor. Yeah. Um, we actually had one person who thought that the octopus didn't like him because it would squirt him every time he would go near it. <laughs> but it didn't squirt everyone else. So it, it right. was just responding to him. So I'm not sure whether it was playful or whether it was mean. But yeah. he was the one that fed it, so it should be playful. Yeah, okay, interesting. And uh, when you go uh, snorkeling down the beaches down the south coast there, do you often see octopus? Yeah, quite often. Yeah. Um, different seasons you'll see different numbers of them and quite often it's the females that we'll see in the shallows the okay. males will often come in for um we think come in for breeding we're not yeah. quite sure why we often see more females but there is one section down in marimbula where i was snorkeling one day and it felt very much like this octopolis or octlantis sort of style thing where i was a very short space snorkeling along and it was literally 10 octopus just like oh there's one there's one there's one all in little dens hiding under different rocks. Yeah. So it is happening in a number of places. Yeah, well, and this, this, that's the interesting thing, is that octopus tend to hide away in little dens. Yeah, um, then... only coming out to feed. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, this that's an interesting point about Marimbula there, and maybe we, we, you should have a chat to the researchers about this <laughs> um, to show them in so, so many uh, areas. But in... Um, 
the case here we're looking at in Jarvis Bay, they found two sites um, that had a whole bunch of octopus together. The first was actually prompted by a, uh, a man-made object that uh, went underwater, um, and they don't list what the object is, but it, the, a whole lot of octopus came to, to uh, nest in that object, create their dens around there. Um, but then just recently they found a, a second site and published a scientific report in September this year on it, and it was um, the uh, a site where they uh, had a bunch of octopus there, and there's a whole range of scallop shells um, around there, and so they've actually kind of built up this site with uh, around the rocks with the scallop shells, um, and what's kind of happening is that uh, the more scallop shells there are there, the more octopus are coming. To, to be there and they're not quite sure why it's happening it's not as though they're uh, purposely building up a city or anything like that <laughs> um, but the researchers reckon it's sort of a process of positive feedback uh, so octopus often eat scallops they go out to find them and rather than eating them out in the open they bring the scallops back to their den to eat um, yeah. because that's a much safer place to be. Um, you know, just as, as you know, you, we don't eat our food on the street, we get takeaway and drive it home. <laughs> Although we're not worried about being attacked on the street. No, that's true. That's true. Um, and so what they do, they bring their scallops back to the site to eat. They have these shells that they discard. But... When uh, octopus are building their den, the shells can actually provide a great way to line and stabilise their dens uh, so they can bring them in and sort of, uh, you know, create a, a safer den, a, a more, I don't know whether it's more comfortable, but certainly less likely to collapse if it's uh, got these scallop shells lining it. And so it kind of becomes a, a perpetuating thing where uh, octopus uh, create a den with these scallop shells and then they go and get more food and bring it back to their den, which brings more scallop shells, which might bring more octopus around to start uh, building more dens. And so it creates this sort of city, uh, this octopolis, Oclantis. Um, but it was interesting when the report was released, as the media is often want to do, uh, the media attention started talking about that, you know, it was a... a, a, a a city, uh, a site uh, that um, Octopus was sort of planning it. Uh, in fact, some reports even said that the octopus were making art and building fences. <laughs> and it's, it's just got a bit... Uh, a bit, bit wild. Uh, uh, wild. And in fact, yeah, I've been using the word city here and I probably shouldn't be because really it's a, it's a site that's been happening. Yeah. Uh, rather than octopus actually making a conscious decision to start creating it's more a city. That it's a good site for them to live in, and so they've all just come to the same site. Yeah. The same reason that barnacles actually end up all living in one area. They often see another barnacle living there and they go, oh, this must be a good place to live. Not, I want to hang out with this barnacle. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess I guess the big difference is though that um, this is a new thing to start seeing so many octopus living uh, together in one location. Yeah, uh, quite new. So it's it's interesting, you know, the the um, the area that they have they found uh, about uh, twenty odd dens together with uh, fifteen octopus present. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's a pretty high numbers in together. But, yeah, they really think it's not, um, it's not octopus making conscious decisions to build together or anything like that. It's just a, a nice little process where the scallop shells have created a, an ability to build dens and that brings more scallop shells in. Well, they have uh, found that they're fighting, that they're actually kicking each other out of dens and <laughs> they're not getting along very well. Yeah, which, <laughs> which is quite funny, I guess, when you put people together who aren't used to existing together. They're like, no, I don't like you. And so the bigger ones are just kicking others out their homes. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. One of, the, one of my favourite things that I did like about it was that um, the, the way octopus maintain their dens. Um, so they do put some care into looking after their den space, as you would, you know, if it's yeah. where you're living, you're going to look after it. And so they, they take out their rubbish either by carrying it away or they use their jet propulsion mechanism, their siphons, to shoot it out, which I think is fantastic. Which is always a good... So they actually just shoot it out the front of their den and it's yeah. actually a good way to spot an octopus den in the water if you're snorkeling ah. is to look for this little, like, line of shells coming out from a little hole sort of or underneath a rock. If you see that, like, they're just kind of like, this is my den. It's just like throwing your rubbish out your front door. <laughs> it's someone else's to deal with then. Yeah, very interesting indeed. <laughs> so there you go. So that's our eight-legged story today. Uh, have we got time for a ten-legged story? I reckon we do. Uh, you, you've got a story I can see you bursting. I'm going to give you 30 <laughs> seconds in just a moment, but I'll wrap up first before we do because it's almost time to go here on Fuzzy Logic as we approach 12 o'clock. Uh, thank you for tuning in today, listeners. If you did enjoy today's show, you can find the podcast Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. If you want to get in contact with us, check out our Facebook page, Fuzzy Logic. Look for the autumn leaf on our fuzzy logo and uh, you'll find us there. You can pop any questions you want to ask us on our wall uh, or if you have any questions about today's show that you want to explore further, just let us know there. Um, we also have our Ask Fuzzy column in the Canberra Times, which happens every week. Uh, today's column is in the paper, so check it out. Uh, if you have a specific question you want asked in the paper, you can email us, askfuzzy at Zoho's. Zoho.com and uh, check it out there. So that's where you can find it all if you want to get engaged with Fuzzy because we do love to hear from you and find out what you want to know about the world around you. All right, I think that's my wrapping up done there, Jill. <laughs> so that leaves you with about oh, 40 seconds 40 to seconds. tell your 10-legged story to finish off our legs show. So let's go. So you've all learnt that I like a bit of my underwater animals so one of these is about a hermit crab that I saw on Facebook recently and relating back to talking about the creepy head doll from um, Toy Story with the six legs, this is a um, hermit crab that's actually found an old head, like an old doll's head, and has used it as its shell. So it's essentially this real-life you know, animal form of the creepy head doll from Toys Story. Toy Story. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. There you go. So that's taken us through from two legs to ten legs today from the uh, crazy robots, the two-legged crested pigeons, the four-legged woolly mammoth, the six-legged bees, the eight-legged octopus, and the ten-legged hermit crabs. If you folks can think of any creatures with more than ten legs, uh, send us uh, a note on our Facebook page. Check us out. There's plenty of creatures out there, I'm sure. You can find uh, any more details. But that wraps it up. Thank you for joining me in the studio today, Jill. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in, listeners. Uh, this is, once again, Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.